series on Harry Potter and the Search for Meaning. Last week we looked at love through the lens of Harry Potter. Um, this week we are looking at trauma through the lens of Harry Potter, trauma and suffering. We think of these books, or at least I do, as like cozy childhood reading. Like these are young adult books and they're fun and they're adventurous and um, just amazing imagination put these stories together. And there are so many fun things about these stories. But if you look closely, these kids' books contain a lot of trauma and adult themes and abuse and death and PTSD and suffering and scars that come from those hurts. Harry Potter was known for the scar on his forehead. That scar is a reminder for Harry of the loss of his parents. And sometimes the scars of, of uh, thoughts and emotions that come with the aftermath of trauma can be just as painful as the original trauma itself. This quote from one of the books, according to Madame Pomfrey, thoughts could leave deeper scars than almost anything else. Some of us have, have visible scars, and some of us, or all of us, have emotional scars that people can't see. And our thoughts and our memories have a tendency to tear open those scars over and over and over, and we relive those feelings. And sometimes the trauma that we go through can be so uh, scary and traumatizing that our mind, uh, for the sake of protecting us, kind of blocks out that trauma, those memories of that trauma. So we don't have to relive it over and over again. But the trauma, the pain, the hurt still lives inside our mind and our bodies still carry that trauma. So I want to recognize that this topic, even though we're looking at it through the lens of Harry Potter, um, it can be a very traumatic topic. <laughs> it's hard to talk about this stuff, hard to talk about suffering. Um, so I want to give some space this morning um, be sensitive to that, and I want to pray and say a prayer as we go into this topic. Do you pray with me? God, you are a God of, of love. You are a God of healing and restoration. So to wrestle with some of the dark thoughts of our minds, God, heal our wounds. Show us what to do with our scars the scars that come from um, choices that we've made, scars that are left by those who have harmed us, scars that are left by trauma of living in a really broken world. So open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear this morning, open our hearts to feel and heal. And in Christ's name, amen. Trauma is hard to talk about, so to kind of keep this sermon from being a traumatic experience in itself, I'm going to sprinkle some really cute pictures in throughout. Lighten the mood a little bit. In the book, The Prisoner of Azkaban, we are introduced to this really scary, dark creature called a Dementor. Um, it's kind of a wraith-like black figure. And in the, in the movie, we kind of see a glimpse of, uh, from Professor Lupin of what these guys do. They suck your soul out of your body and along with it, every uh, happy or loving memory that you have. And I want to show you this video that it kind of explains. Um, Kevin, you might have to turn down or up the volume. That, why do the Dementors affect me so? I mean, more than everyone else. Listen, 
The Dementors are amongst the foulest creatures to walk this earth. They feed on every good feeling, every happy memory, until a person is left with absolutely nothing but his worst experiences. You are not weak, Harry. The Dementors affect you most of all because there are true horrors in your past, horrors your classmates can scarcely imagine. You have nothing to be ashamed of. I'm scared, Professor. Well, I'd consider you a fool if you weren't. The Dementors kind of suck the soul out of your body along with every happy memory. Trauma and suffering tends to have the same effect on us. We all have Dementors that we're fighting. So what are the Dementors that you are fighting? The things that have happened to you that just seem to suck the positive, loving, good things out of your life, out of your soul. The Harry was orphaned as a child with the death of his parents, and he was famous for his trauma. He was known as the boy who lived. It is a pretty hard, rough thing when you are identified with your trauma. When people know you for what happened to you. That's hard. As a teenager, he learned that he had a godfather. It's the only family he had left. And his godfather, Sirius, wanted to take him in. Um, Harry lived in a very abusive home from his aunt and uncle, physically, verbally, emotionally abusive. And he finds out he has a godfather that wants to take him in. But then the book, right after he starts living with Sirius, he sees Sirius Black, his godfather, his only family, murdered in front of him. Uh, it's trauma after trauma for Harry. So Harry is angry, and he is grieving over Sirius's death, and Dumbledore tells Harry, there is no shame in what you are feeling. On the contrary, the fact that you can feel pain like this is your greatest strength. And Harry felt the white-hot anger lick in his insides, blazing in the terrible emptiness, filling him with the desire to hurt Dumbledore for his calmness and his empty words. Have you ever gone through a trauma and people try to make you feel better and it just makes you angrier? Harry says, my greatest strength is it. You haven't got a clue. You don't know. Dumbledore says, what don't I know? It was too much. Harry turned around, shaking with rage. I don't want to talk about how I feel, all right? Dumbledore says, Harry, suffering like this proves you are still a man. This pain is part of being human. Then I don't want to be human. I've had enough. I've seen enough. I want out. I want it to end. I don't care anymore. Trauma has that effect on us. We watched the movie last night, and this, this scene wasn't in the movie. It was in the book. I thought that was interesting that they didn't include it. Maybe it was a little too intense and real for the movie. Sometimes there are no words to say that can comfort, and that's okay. The Harry wears the scars of grief, of violence, of death, of abuse. And his friends throughout the books carry some scars also. Ron Weasley is the youngest of seven children, so he lives in the shadow of his siblings. Um, so he kind of wears these scars of feeling unimportant and overlooked. Hermione's parents are not magic folk. So because of that, Hermione never feels like she truly belongs at Hogwarts because she experiences discrimination and prejudice because she's not full-blooded magic. 
And so she experiences some bullying and discrimination because of that. And she is so intelligent that she kind of uses her intelligence as a shield. Have you ever used um, humor or a tough exterior to cover up your hurt, your insecurity? Neville Longbottom. He was born the same day as Harry Potter, but without any of the fame. And he was overlooked, constantly made fun of, socially awkward. He tragically lost his parents as a child. He was raised by a grandmother who constantly told him that he was not good enough, that he did not live up to the standards of his parents. Have you ever felt social anxiety? Have you ever felt like you didn't live up to other people's expectations of you? That was Neville. Because of what Neville went through, his trauma, he suffers from PTSD in the stories as well. Draco Malfoy, hard to feel sorry for him. He's kind of the bully of the Harry Potter series. But he has such a strong desire for control and power through the series, and we see glimpses of his interactions with his father, and we see that the reason he has so much desire for control and power by bullying others is because he was bullied at home by his family. He was stripped of power and control by his parents, by his dad. So he was raised in a home that was full of prejudice, uh, discrimination toward others who were different. Raised in a home with a, a worldview of hate. And so Draco carried those scars. Draco reminds us that our home, our hurt, and our scars, we kind of carry on, carry their worldviews with us. Um, we carry the hurt that they caused with us. Trauma can lead to self-blame, to doubts, and they're uh, a feeling that because of what I've been through, there's something wrong with me. And Harry kind of feels this, and he says to Sirius Black, his godfather, what if after everything that I've been through, something's gone wrong inside of me? What if I'm becoming bad? And Sirius says, I want you to listen to me very carefully, Harry. You are not a bad person. You are a very good person who bad things happen to. We've all got both light and dark inside us. What matters is the part we choose to act on. That's who we really are. You are a very good person who bad things have happened to. That is all of us, I believe, deep down. All of us, inside of us, the image of God in us is a good. God made all people, he said, several times and it was good. We are good people. Bad things happen too. And those things should not, on the deepest level, define who we are. So and now, for a brief intermission, let's look at a cute dog in Harry Potter clothes. <laughs> Our scars become a part of us, and they become these reminders of of pain. They become reminders that things in this world are not as it should be. But the scars can also be uh, symbols of healing, symbols of life, symbols of uh, restoration and hope. 
when Ari, in the first book, I totally just said Harry like they do in the movie. Ari, Ari, you say it without the H. When Ari Potter, in the first book, <laughs> asks Dumbledore if he can get rid of his scar with some spell or something, and Dumbledore says, even if I could, I wouldn't. Scars can come in useful. I have one myself above my left knee, which is a perfect map of the London Underground. <laughs> this is J.K. Rowling's humorous way of saying that we can learn a lot from our scars, as ugly as they can be. So saying that they can be useful does not mean that um, we have our scars for a reason, that our trauma happened for a reason. Saying our scars are useful does not saying that God caused the trauma. I believe that when we hurt others, it's because people hurt others, not because God caused it or wanted it to happen. The question of why trauma happens to us, of why bad things happen, and why God allows those things to happen, it's called the problem of theodicy, and it has been a problem, a question that has been asked for thousands of years since humans evolved to have a consciousness of ask these questions of why do these things happen. And nobody has come up with a good answer. We just don't know why bad things happen. No matter what answers we've been given, people still don't find those to be um, good enough reasons to justify the extreme trauma that we experience in life, in the world. So I don't have a good answer for you for why bad things happen. The reason we have so many stories in the Bible, um, it's been said, is because the world is not as it should be, and people were trying to figure out how to respond when the world is not as it should be, and so they wrote down these stories. And these stories we have in the Bible and our sacred scripture is a result of catastrophic human trauma. The whole reason we have these stories is because of trauma. We are looking back and seeing how people wrestled with these things. Our scars are reminders of pain, they can also be symbols of healing. So a symbol of the early church was a cross. And if you lived in the first century Roman Empire and saw a cross on the road, your stomach would just drop. Because that cross is a symbol of torture, of nails driving into the flesh, a symbol of suffocation, of dehydration, of loneliness, a symbol that the Roman Empire they want. It was a symbol of public shaming. So why in the world do we wear this symbol on our necks? Why do we have this symbol um, in our homes? Why is it in churches? Why is it in hospitals? This symbol of public shaming. By the second century, we have writings from Christians that refer to the cross as the Lord's sign. And by the second century, we have writings that say early Christians would trace the symbol of the cross on their forehead as an identity marker to say, I am a follower of Christ. Why would they use this symbol of shame and pain and suffering and trauma as their identity marker for who they are? It's kind of messed up. But they did that because after Christ, this symbol of death and shame and suffering became 
a symbol for them of resurrection, of new life, of a new beginning, of new hope. They reframed what the cross meant. I think our cigars are similar symbols. The book of Revelation was written, um, I grew up thinking the book of Revelation was written to communicate uh, what's going to happen at the end of the world, the end times. Um, that is one interpretation of, uh, of Revelation, and that everything that happens in Revelation will happen. Um, I grew up with the Left Behind series. Y'all remember that, those books. I was scared me half to death because I thought we're all going to be raptured up and we're, our clothes are going to be left behind and we're all going to be naked going up into the sky to meet Jesus. <laughs> That's a scary thought. And we don't want to be left behind, but at the same time, I don't want to be naked flying up in the sky. Weird stuff happens in the book of Revelation. There is another interpretation of why Revelation was written. It's written by a guy named John, and some say that John also wrote the Gospel of John. John was um, uh, exiled to an island, um, and that's where he wrote this letter. Revelation is a letter to followers of Jesus living under the Roman Empire who were experiencing some traumatic persecution and death at the hands of the Roman Emperor. And the world is broken and you are oppressed and experiencing this trauma that death and violence will not have the last word in the end. So it was written as a letter of encouragement and hope to Christians who are going through some traumatic experiences. And part of Revelation in, in the fifth chapter, it kind of gives a picture of, of uh, the King, God, Christ coming back and kind of setting things right. So all the brokenness in the world, God comes back and he restores it all. And he gives a picture. He says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. And that lamb represents Christ. And John didn't say, I find it interesting that Christ is coming back uh, dressed as Thor with a big hammer riding a horse. He's going to come slaughter our enemies. He comes back as a lamb that's been slaughtered. He comes back as if he still looks like he was crucified. And I think this tells us something very unique and important about who God is. And it ties back to John's uh, gospel in chapter 20. Jesus has come back from the dead, and he shows himself to his followers and so his followers go back to a guy named Thomas who was not there to see Jesus. And Thomas says, I do not believe you, which is a very logical, understandable thing to say. He says, I will not believe that Jesus came back from the dead until I see the scars where they dug nails into his hands and his feet. And they stabbed him in the side with a spear. Unless I can touch his scars, I'm not going to believe that this guy came back from the dead. And we call him Doubting Thomas. This was a Caravaggio famous piece of art showing this. And so eight days later, the disciples are in a room together, and Thomas is there. Jesus appears out of nowhere, and he still has the scars on his body. And he says to Thomas, you can touch my scars. And Thomas believes in that moment. Jesus, when he came back from the dead, still carried the scars 
God didn't wipe away the scars. He didn't make them disappear. He still had the hurt. He still had the story on his body of what horrible trauma happened to him. Is it possible maybe that when we get to heaven, we will still have our scars? Because our scars tell a story. We are here. We've been through something terrible, but we're here. Our scars from our trauma, our suffering, tell a story. So what story will our scars tell? Um, I encourage you all to go back a couple months to when Kate spoke and shared her story because she gave a whole sermon on this, which was really powerful. Scars tell a powerful story. And we choose what kind of story our scars will tell. Richard Ashcroft of uh, Bittersweet Symphony, he wrote a song, Bittersweet Symphony. And in that song, he said, I need to hear some sounds that recognize the pain in me. We need to know that the pain we experience is seen and recognized, that we're not going through it alone. And this was evidence in, uh, I think it was the last book of Harry Potter. Harry Potter was possessed by Voldemort. His body was taken over by him. And he kind of isolated himself after that. He said, I don't want anyone to talk to me, said Harry Jenny said, well, that was a bit stupid of you, seeing as you don't know anyone but me who's been possessed by you-know-who, and I can tell you how it feels. Harry remained quite still at the impact of these words hit him, and then he returned on the spot to face her. I forgot, he said. Lucky you, said Jenny. The pain, the hurt, the trauma that we go through, we do not carry it alone. It is not always appropriate to go to somebody who is experiencing a hurt and say, I know exactly how you feel, because you don't. But the reason we have uh, AA groups, the reason we have grief groups, the reason we have these things is because we have shared experiences of hurt and trauma that are similar. So Harry Potter's stories, the Gospels, they teach us, you are not alone in your suffering. There is an idea in uh, medieval Christianity that all suffering in the world is one, that all suffering in the world is shared, so that when I hurt, you hurt, that our suffering connects us. It's the idea in Galatians when Paul says, carry each other's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. You carry each other's burdens, and no one carries their suffering alone because that trauma is really, 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 really heavy. It can kill us. It can destroy our soul. We cannot carry it alone. And we were not meant to carry it alone. And the cross, the idea that God, through the person of Jesus, experienced the trauma of the cross and came out of it alive tells us that God is a God who suffers with us, who hurts with us, who enters into our suffering and our pain and our trauma and says, I'm going to carry it with you. And then he says to you all, now go do it the same thing with everyone else. Go help others carry their hurt and their suffering. 
the epilogue of, of uh, book seven, the last book, Harry Potter is not uh, all better. Everything's not okay by the end of the story. The people who died were still dead. He still has the scars from what happened to him. But he's moving forward. He's living a better life, a more fulfilling life, a more meaningful life. And he has found solidarity with the people, friends, and family around him. That's exactly what we are here to do at Mission Gathering. We're not here to just make everything all better, but we're here uh, to sit in solidarity with one another. When we do go through those traumas and when, when the memories of those traumas come up, we are here to sit with one another. Say you're not alone. That's why we exist as a church. And one another that there is some hope, there is some light, there is some love in the world to point each other toward that rather than get lost in the loneliness of hurt and suffering. Uh, there's a quote from a movie, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. It's a really good movie. It says, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not yet the end. The hopeful message. That is the story of Christ, of the resurrection, of uh, John's revelation, that everything will be all right in the end. The cross and the resurrection tells us that death does not have the final word, the final say. Trauma does not have the final word, the final say. So if it's not okay, it means it's not the end because it will be okay in the end. We have hope love will win in the end. Love has the final say. That love is in you. That love is in this church. That love is in Christ. That love is in kindness. That love is in listening and carrying each other's burdens. When we take part in communion, the Eucharist, we enter into this uh, ancient tradition of Christians who through the bread and the wine juice enter into the suffering of Christ. The idea that the suffering of Christ we share. All suffering we share is part of. And so when Jesus was in the upper room with his followers and he was getting ready to go through intense trauma of crucifixion. He was preparing his followers for that moment. Preparing them to change how they see God. That God is not one who is the cause of all of our suffering, but God enters into our suffering and he says he's about to do that. So he takes the bread. He says, this is my body broken for you. He takes the cup and he pours it out. My blood is a new promise. A new way to see God. A new way to see suffering. A new way to see our scars. He said every time you eat and drink Remember this moment. Remember me. So I invite you all to the front.
take communion. disciples of Christ is a little bit unique in the history of Christianity because it's a denomination that said every single person is welcome to the table whether you are an adult or a child it's not always been the case I've got to nerd out a little bit and say that whether you are from Slytherin house Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, or Ravenclaw, you are welcome to the table. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that. Come receive the body and love of Christ for you. Hope. As we leave this morning, may you know in your heart that you are good people. Bad things have happened to you are good people and may you see everyone around you as good people, not defined by their trauma, not defined, defined by their wounds. That scars are symbols of hope and healing and resurrection and restoration. Oh, thanks for being here, we'll see you next time. <laughs>